I would say that I'm here all week, but I'm not going to stay here all week. Thank you anyway. While I'm on that subject, I, I have to say um, thank you to all of you who pray for me and for my family. I can't tell you how many people this week have said, I'm praying for you, we're praying for you. That, that means a lot. It, it really does. I can't imagine being better taken care of than I am here. And I am very grateful for that. My family is too. And my poor wife has been so nervous this week because I'm preaching. I can't imagine why. I mean, it's not like I'm going to do anything unexpected, right? <laughs> so I was, I was struck this morning by how all the music all those wonderful songs, Hallett and Jim, all those songs brought us to Christ. They all brought us face-to-face with him. They all brought us right up to him. Uh, and, and it was beautiful because that's exactly what I'm going to start with. Uh, the Old Testament was our tutor to lead us to Christ. The songs and the prayers have brought us to Christ. So here we are, and a couple weeks away from Easter. So we are in a very good position for being at Christ, which begs the question, who is this Jesus? Who is he? Why is it that we keep hearing his name so much when we go to church? Maybe you've heard the joke about the kids in Sunday school. The teacher was asking them some questions and started off with, okay, kids, Maybe you've seen something that's gray and furry, has a big bushy tail, and eats nuts. Have any of you seen that? Can you tell me what that is? Do you know the name? Nobody answers. Teachers really scratching their head going, um, I didn't think this was a hard one. Can you guys give it a try? Somebody tell me. What, what do you think this is? And the boy says, It sure sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but I just know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> so, we, so we hear his name a lot, right? And, and sometimes I think we kind of sort of pass by his resume, so to speak. So I want to delve into that today. Who is this Jesus? And after we talk a little bit about that, I've got a couple questions to ask. There are a lot of people who are willing to give an opinion about Jesus, history, uh, scholars, people on the street, and other religions, of course, mention him. And most of them are fairly uh, alike in describing him as a prophet, as a teacher, as a good man. And they're right. He was a prophet. He gave prophecies, some of which have already come true. He fulfilled prophecy, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He was a teacher. He did a lot of teaching, especially to his disciples. He explained a lot of things to a lot of people. And he was a man, no doubt about that. And he was good. In calling him that, they are more right than they know. We'll talk about that in a little bit, too. The problem here is that all of these correct opinions are incorrect in stopping there. If all you say about Jesus is that he was a prophet, a teacher, or a good man, you fail to even acknowledge the shocking nature of so much of what he said and did. And because we're in church a lot, we've heard the stories a lot, we know the Bible a lot, Sometimes we forget just how amazing Jesus' life really was. So if we classify him only as good, we fall short of the mark. The church contends, and I agree, that Jesus was the central figure in all of human history. It's quite a claim. Rather bold, 
daring. But can it stand up to scrutiny? So let's scrutinize. First, we're going to look at what Jesus said and did. Because a lot of it's been recorded. And a lot of it's been commented on. And I'm going to give eight examples of his very shocking behavior. Shocking, I say, because if he were just a man, some of the things he said and did would be ridiculous on an extreme level. If he were just God, however, they would also not make sense. And so it's important to put the two together. So, first shocking claim. He makes no apologies, none, for his uh, exclusive claim, exclusive claim to absolutes. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People don't say that. Everybody, in, in our culture anyway, loves to hedge their bets. We want to make sure we don't offend anyone. We want to make sure that we reach all the demographics. We want to make sure that we know our audience and all these things. And those aren't necessarily bad. But Jesus doesn't go there. It's almost like he doesn't care if he offends his audience. You're not going to find that in how to, how to give a speech. And I know this because my son has been researching this. He was made to give a speech, and he's, uh, he's going to give it this next week. And so he decided to give his speech about why you should learn how to give a speech. He found some good information. But I don't think, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think you found anyone saying you should try to offend everyone possible. Was, was that in? No? Okay. But it's almost like Jesus didn't care whether you were offended by what he said. You don't see that in world leaders very often. John 14.6 is the reference there. Number two, second piece of shocking behavior. He claims and has uh, given to him the title Savior of the world, of his people, and not Savior from headaches, not Savior from the IRS, not Savior from the Romans or, or from feeling bad. Savior from sin. Nobody else says that. Confucius doesn't say that. Buddha doesn't say that. You don't, you don't get that from people. People don't like to talk about sin. I don't. Because I've got some. Maybe you do too. We don't like to bring it out. But again, it's like Jesus doesn't care how sensitive we are about this. He brings it right up, often. In Matthew 1.21, the name given to Mary by the angel is Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, Rescuer. The one who comes in and, and snatches us from the lion's mouth. In 1 Peter 2.24 and again in John 8.21, it is made very clear that Jesus' main purpose was to come and die to save us from sin. If someone's willing to give that much to something, it must be pretty important to them. It obviously was to him. One of my favorite Christian artists, Andrew Peterson, has a great picture for this. He says that Jesus, uh, he chased my sin to Calvary and he caught it on that hill. And it didn't survive. So that sets Jesus apart from so many other leaders, religions, attitudes, pretty much from everybody else. That's number two. Number three, because of this sin that is so important to him, he claims to forgive sin. And not just sins against his own person. 
In, in the story in Matthew 9, 2, this is the story about the friends who brought the paralyzed friend of theirs to see Jesus, and they can't get in because there's so many people, Jesus is so popular, and they are not daunted. One of them says, let's go up on the roof. We'll take apart the roof of this house that we don't own. And we'll lower this man into this meeting that we haven't been invited to so that he can see Jesus who doesn't know him because it's that important to us. There was a lot to risk. I don't know what the laws were about opening up other people's roofs, but I can't imagine people just go, oh, sure, come on, make a hole, we're good. So they do this, and very interesting, Jesus sees this coming down, and the first, first thing out of his mouth is to the man on the bed, he says, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? He doesn't go, what the heck? Like I probably would have. He, he doesn't say, you know, that's going to cost a lot. He doesn't say, stand up and walk, at least not first. First thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. He must have known that that was weighing on this man. And then comes the really interesting part to me. The people around, their first response to what Jesus says is not, oh, yes, forgiveness, just what this man needs. That's not their first response. Their first response is not even about the event itself, not, oh, my word, what are these lunatics thinking? Their first response is, who does this man think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? <laughs> if you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and I'm guessing most of you probably are, you'll remember that Professor Kirk that the children come to explain their adventure to has a very signature phrase. Logic! Why don't they teach them logic in these schools? And you can almost hear Jesus thinking this when he talks to these people who are like, who can forgive sins but God alone? So connect the dots. This is God. Because he can and he does forgive sins. I'm going to read a little bit from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which expounds upon this point a little bit. Now, unless the speaker is God, this forgiveness is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe, and I forgive you. You steal my money, and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself, unrobbed, untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money. Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. Yet, this is the strange, significant thing. Even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. 
So we've got this forgiveness of sins thing that nobody else really addresses the same way in all of human history. Number four, Jesus has this unique relationship with God the Father. A relationship described in every situation as father to son. And that's different. He also promises this Holy Spirit to perpetuate the relationship that he has with his disciples. He talks in, I believe it's John chapter 15, about being one, us being one with him, him being one with the Father so that we can be one with the Father. That kind of relationship you don't hear about in other religions. There's, there's the Hindus who say that one day we will all be each other, but that's not really the same thing. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. We've got the Trinity showing up from the get-go. Matthew 3.16, Jesus was baptized. He came up from the water. Heavens were opened. Spirit of God descended like a dove, and the Father spoke. This is my beloved Son. I delight in him. You've got this dynamic life between the Father and the Son. Lewis talks about how the phrase, God is love, implies inherently that you've got at least two people. Love requires an other. So you've got this relationship between the Father and the Son, almost almost a life unto itself, and Jesus talks about us being a part of that. And then he talks about this Holy Spirit, John 15, 26, and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, Spirit of truth, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. This idea of the three-in-one, three persons and one God, we still struggle to wrap our brains around this. All the other made-up religions are made up to be easy. The real one isn't. It's very unique that way. So that was number four. Number five of eight. We've got this all-God and all-man issue that we sometimes try to separate out. A lot of the heresies in the early church dealt with whether he was all man or all God and what that meant, and the disciples kept bringing people back to, no, it's a both and. It's not an either or. We've been studying the book of Hebrews in our house church, and it's very clear from that book that this was still an issue to whoever this this, uh, author was writing to. Jews uh, who had become Christians primarily, I think. But that Jesus was both and needed to be both. If he's not God, he can't help. But if he's not man, he can't connect. And he's got to be both. You look at all the ordinary human kinds of events that he attended. Weddings, funerals, dinners, festivals. You look at the ordinary responses that he had. He cried. He got angry. He suffered. He was weary. I dare say he laughed. I mean, he created it after all. Very human. You look at the different ordinary substances that he used and prescribed. He used mud. He used saliva to bring miraculous healings. That doesn't sound super spiritual to me. Doesn't sound like long robes and stained glass and smells and bells like you sometimes find in churches. And not that those are bad, but so much of what Jesus did was not in a religious context. It was on the street, it was in the home, it was arm in arm with somebody, it was at the graveside. He, he, he really messes with us <laughs> in a lot of ways. He prescribes bread and wine. I don't know. If, if I were a God and I were prescribing some method for people to remember me, bread and wine's not the first thing I would think of. And 
And then there's all this fish. (laughs) He recruits fishermen. He makes sure they catch a lot of fish several times. He cooks fish for them. He eats fish with them. He eats fish in front of them to prove that he's got a body, that he's not just a ghost. He's not just some spiritual essence that they think they're seeing. Oh, no. Flesh and blood. Put your hands in the scars. The scars really happened. The death really happened. Very human, this Jesus. Speaking of his death, no one questions his his innocence. You look at the trial that he had and the death that he had, and nobody questions it. Not Pilate, who allowed his death. Not his disciples, who deserted him. Not the Roman centurion, who administered the death. Even modern-day scholars and atheists, if you try to deny Jesus' sinless nature, you still can't convict him of any sin. It's just not there. Not even the Sanhedrin could convict him. They tried. They broke every one of their own rules to try to convict him, and they couldn't do it until he helped them out by confessing in front of them that he was the Son of God. It took Jesus to convict Jesus. Mind-blowing. And then, how do you refute the resurrection? There's no body. No body to be found except the church. And the only way to explain the church is through the Holy Spirit. What do you say to all that? I mean, if you're trying to deny the effect of Jesus, if you're trying to deny his work, how do you explain all that? We're going to get into a list of the different ways that the church has affected history in a minute. But as Gamaliel correctly predicted in Acts chapter 5, if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overcome it. The church remains unovercome today. And then Jesus promised he would return and take us home to be with him. I don't hear any other religious figure making those claims. I don't hear any people making those claims. This this spiritual, supernatural, after-death kind of thing is pretty important to Jesus. He talks about it several times. In our very materialistic society, I don't hear very many people talking about that. Most of us are pretty focused on what we can enjoy here and now today. And even those who don't want to believe that he is who he said he is are kind of scared that he actually is coming back. Anyone else promises to come back, and who's going to care? If my dog comes back to life, eh. My great-grandfather comes back to life, I mean, I'd be glad to see him, but but if Jesus comes back to life and is coming again, that changes everything for everyone, living and dead. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every eye will see. Number seven. There's all these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Hundreds, literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by the life of Christ, including a few that are pretty impossible. You think about how to rig Jesus' birthplace. How are you going to do that? Who's going to know that Caesar Augustus is going to have all the world be taxed? You can't rig that. Then you've got his rescue from Herod. The dream to the wild. You can't rig that. His method of death. No one's going to choose that. Jesus almost didn't choose it. And then, of course, there's the impossible. His virgin birth. It's still impossible. Except for the one time that it actually did happen. Number eight in the list of shocking things about Jesus. There's this whole thing about relationship. So different from 
Judaism, so different from any other religion that's based on works. In every other religion, either you achieve godness, righteousness, holiness, or you earn it, or you, you do it. It is all on you. Or else it's random. Jesus is the only one who says, no, it's all on me. Peter walks on the water, but like all of us, he gets distracted. Squirrel. And he starts to fall, and immediately Jesus is right there to catch him. It's all on me, Jesus says. I got you. You don't find that anywhere else, because along with that is our acknowledgement that we need him to do it all. That's the rub. There's no room for any pride here. No other religion offers a solution to sin. No other religion offers friendship with a God, let alone with the God. I'm going to read some more from C.S. Lewis. I wish I could write like he did. Now, what does it all matter, he says? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not just a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Jesus is the only one talking like this, the only one offering this kind of thing. Nobody else is thinking or talking or acting like this through all of human history. So we've heard from him. Now we're going to hear from some other people about him. This is what some others said about him during his life. His friends and family started off by saying, oh, he's crazy. Let's go and rescue him from himself. And then when they decided they couldn't do that, you remember Jesus said, these are my brothers and sister and mother, these who do the will of my Father in heaven. When they couldn't do that, then uh, when it was time for the festival, they said, go, go on, show yourself, have a big stage, go off and be this, whoever you are, go show yourself, why are you hiding? Because they still didn't get it. Later on, though, we find that his brother James, his mother, Probably some others have joined the church. They are members. Then you listen to his enemies and the leaders of his time. They had some very interesting questions for him. Where did you get this authority? So he's got some authority. So you recognize his authority. It's almost like they want it too. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? You can hear it in their voice. Almost like a little child testing the boundaries. But of course, that implies inherently that you've got legitimate authority and power to enforce boundaries. What is truth, Pilate said. He didn't have it. He wanted it. Jesus talked about it. It's almost like Pilate saying, you seem to know it. How do I get it? 
How do I know it? And so often, the Pharisees and, and the people, even his disciples, some of the time, <laughs> would say to him, don't, don't you know? Don't, don't you get it? Don't you see? Don't... Why don't you get it? What is wrong with you that, you that you're not responding like the rest of us are? Why aren't you panicking in the sinking ship? Why aren't you panicking about all these people we can't feed? Why, why aren't you uh, uh, scared to death to break the Sabbath laws? What is the matter with you, Jesus? What's going on in your head, boy? Why aren't you self-conscious? Why aren't you insecure like all the rest of us? Why are you so different? And then there's Nicodemus and some others who came to him and, and essentially asked, who are you? We see that you're different. We see that you're unique. We see that you're... We don't have a name for you. There's no place in the file for you. We don't have a category for you. And we don't know what to do about it. Nobody does what you do, Jesus. Can you explain... This is why everyone was always asking him who he was and why they were always so focused on anything he said about his identity. Satan in particular focuses on this. If you are the son of God. If, if, if. Who is this Jesus? Such an important question. Well, that's what others said about him at the time he was alive. I'm going to read you what some people have said about him since. Stephen Curtis Chapman, Christian singer, wrote the song His Eyes. In it, he writes this, Sometimes his eyes were gentle and filled with laughter, and sometimes they cried. Sometimes there was a fire of holy anger in Jesus' eyes. But the eyes that saw hope in the hopeless, that saw through the fault to the need, are the same eyes that look down from heaven into the deepest part of you and me. Sometimes his voice comes calling like rolling thunder, like driving rain. Sometimes his voice is quiet, and we start to wonder if he knows our name. But he who spoke peace to the waters cares more for our hearts than the waves. And the voice that once said, you're forgiven, still says, you're forgiven today. George MacDonald has often been quoted as describing that he had never found comfort and terror so intertwined as he did in the person of Christ. In his song, The Reckoning, Andrew Peterson talks about this combining of things that we like to keep separate. We, we have a hard time holding these things together. But Jesus doesn't. Listen to this list. You are holiness and grace. You are fury and rest. You are anger and love. You curse and you bless. You are mighty and weak. You are silence and song. You are plain as the day, but you have hidden your face. I don't know of anyone I can describe that way. We all have moods. But to say that someone personifies these things at once is unique. I begin to understand a little bit more the verses that say Christ is all in all. And to live is Christ. Because he's in everything. John Eldridge, in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, 
talks about the, I'm sure I'm going to uh, butcher this name, it's the Oberammergau Passion Play in Germany, yeah. He talked about a friend of his who saw it, and the friend says, all the villagers play parts in the story. For nine years, they're woodcarvers. Then the tenth year, they take on a whole new part. The men grow beards and let their hair grow long. The play is three hours in the morning, followed by a break, and then it continues in the afternoon. And during the break, I spent quite a bit of time in one particular wood shop. The woodcarver himself gave me a detailed explanation of his carvings. He had a head full of long brown hair, and some woman asked him if he was in the play. Yeah, he replied. I thought, to whom am I speaking? Is this Peter, James, John, Judas? Jesus? The moment I thought his name, it was as if the Lord was saying to me, you recognize me on the stage in the part you know so well, but do you recognize me in the shop? Have you so compartmentalized your life between sacred and secular, church and business, Sunday and the rest of the week, that when I am out there, you no longer recognize me? I realized at that moment I could walk into church on Sunday and know what to expect because I know the story. I could see Jesus in that setting. Then I would leave and go out into my own world and leave him in first century Palestine. I couldn't recognize him in the shop. We've heard from the Christians. If you ask the world today what it has to say about Christians and Christianity, there's a lot of negative things that the world will tell you. We humans are not able to perfectly imitate, obey, or understand Jesus. Even those of us who claim to follow Christ invariably fall short. And there have been many false messiahs, abuses in the name of Christianity. But the world has an agenda to focus on what can be ridiculed and dismissed and explained away. They're scared, you see. I don't blame them. Here's what they ignore, what the world isn't telling you. In the book of James, he says, True religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress, keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Consider the effects of Jesus and of the church on the following areas. Languages and translations. How much work has been done worldwide on different languages in order to translate the Bible? Art, music, drama, and story. How many songs, pieces of artwork, books, pamphlets, speeches. Anyone remember Toymaker's Dream? Toymaker and Son? The masterpiece? How much art has been done because of the inspiration of Jesus in the life of the artist? Education. How many people have been taught to read so they can read the Bible? Medicine and health. How many people have been helped because Jesus wants us to help? Exploration and civilization. How many places were colonized and places explored and places dared for the sake of spreading the gospel? Science and invention. Counseling and psychology. Disaster relief and charities. How many are motivated because of a relationship with the Savior? Marriage itself and family and standards of good taste and decency. How many decisions do you parents make because of what you want your kids to become? How many movies are bought or not bought? You know which kind of movies make the most money? One's rated G. Because parents bring their kids. And that means more tickets. R-rated movies do not make as much because nobody comes to them. <laughs> then there's the rule of law, government and justice, and even military behavior that comes out of our founding fathers' belief in the scriptures and what God himself prescribed for Israel. And then we have the very definition of life, the definition of death, any kind of understanding of the supernatural. And then we have wisdom and purity and grace and truth. We would not understand these without 
Jesus helping us to understand them. So many of these lives have been, for, I mean, areas of life have been forever changed. Even, even how we record the date before Christ, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So here we are again. And you have to decide, who is this Jesus? He even had a powerful effect on the area of furniture. Take a look. Hi. This is, of course, only one artist's interpretation of what may have happened, but... I like to think that this fits with the Jesus we know from Scripture, don't you? I'm going to read to you a few comments that people made. Uh, this was posted on YouTube, I don't know how many years ago, but these are some of the things people said after viewing it. It's an amazing thing to see the king of all things as a simple man who loved his mother, something we can all relate to. This scene usually makes me cry. I want to see Jesus so bad. Imagine owning dining room furniture made by Jesus. <laughs> OMG, he's such a sweetheart. That's it. I'm letting my beard grow. This scene always makes me happy and smile. It shows Jesus with a sense of humor, so God must have a sense of humor. We hear that said, don't we? Somehow we don't always make the connection to apply it to Jesus. I wonder if Mary and Jesus are like this while they're in Almighty God's kingdom now. Look how Jesus rolls his eyes just a little bit when she tells him not to go inside all dirty. So now that we've heard what people have to say, we have a couple of questions to answer. First one is, what am I to make of him? Who will he be in my life? Lewis talks about the question of whether he's liar, lunatic, or Lord. We've alluded to that already in the whole question of logic. If only God can do these things and Jesus is doing them, he must be the God he claims to be, however strange and bizarre that might seem. In Matthew 19, 17, when the rich young ruler addresses him, he says, Good teacher, and immediately Jesus interrupts him. Whoa, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Connect the dots. You don't get to call me good teacher and stop there. 
He is who He is. And He is... He wants to be in every part of our lives as unique as those lives are. He is so much more than any one life can know. That's why he wanted us to be a body so that we can help to show the world through all the different lives that we have what Jesus is like. Let the Bible be the frame, the church the canvas, and our lives the paints that he uses to show us more and more of himself. And then the last question. Because if you ask, what am I to make of Jesus, you also have to ask, what is he to make of me? And there's some good things to remember about that. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. Jesus has claims on us that supersede our own claims. 1 John 3.2, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not just how we think he is, not just how we are unable to imagine that he might be, but we will see him as he is. That is encouraging. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him. Have a napkin, Jesus. Let me get you a fork. I'm sorry, the salt's empty. I'll go refill it. All those little things about having supper. So unique. Some of us have quiet suppers. Some of us have loud suppers. Jesus wants to be in all of them. With the Pharisee, with the publican, with the Republican, with the Democrat, with the Libertarian, with with all of us. As unique and personal as dinner is. John 15, 15, I do not call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. He's not the author of confusion. If there's a decision you have to make, go to the Lord. He's so good to make it clear. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. And after seeing that clip, that means something a little bit different. Did you see the detail, the, the focus, the sanding, the chipping, the doing it just right? A lot of you in here are artists, and as a, someone who's dabbled in the artist world myself, I can tell you that usually the hardest lesson for an artist to learn is when to stop fixing their work. Can I get an amen? Because I've ruined artwork by trying to fix it too much. Jesus doesn't. You cannot get too much fixing from the one who knows exactly what you're supposed to look like. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. We do have to take up our cross. That's part of it. There's a part of us, that sinful self, that does not want Jesus involved. I do it self. As just about every two and three-year-old has probably said. I don't want help. But of course we need it. And God in his mercy allows us to stumble so that we realize we need it. And for those of us who are more stubborn, he allows us to stumble more. Sometimes to stumble pretty hard so that we'll finally get it through our heads that, yeah, we do need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. And praise the Lord, we have a Savior. John sixteen fifteen. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all creation. Let your light so shine. Right? We do have a job to do here. And that's one of the other reasons why we're supposed to get together like this. So we can do it. So we can be faithful, just as he is faithful. And then in Luke 23, 43, today you will be with me in paradise. John 14, 2, I go to prepare a place for you. He's not done. We're not done. 
But we know that when we are done, it's going to be really good. So what now? Jesus is the most important person ever. He is the elephant in every room. What will we make of him? And will we allow him to make something of us? Will we walk with him, talk with him, invite him to our supper and everything else? Invite him to our garage? Invite him to our car? Mine's not very clean. What will be our response when others ask us, hey, who is this Jesus? What's he about? Why is he so different? And we can tell the world some, but I think, just like I'd like to tell you more, I think it's good that we let Jesus talk to us too. So if, if you would start the music, I'm going to say a prayer, and then as the music plays, um, let Jesus talk to you. Jesus, help us to, um, to be open to you. Help us to be attuned to your voice, to place ourselves at your feet, and just listen, to let you in. And, and help us, Lord, remember that, that the, the humanness of the people in our lives through whom we interpret you are not all that there is to you. That you are so much more. That you want us to know you so much more. So I pray, Lord, that you would open doors. That you would help us to open doors. To let you in when we hear you knock. To trust the work you're doing inside of us. And through us. That we may show you to each other. That the world may see you in us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, James. Thank you for preparing us for Holy Week. Father, we thank you so very much for all we've heard. Help us now to go into the week before us and then Holy Week to follow, meditating much on these thoughts and these passages. Father, I pray that you would give us unique opportunities to share with friends, with neighbors, who this Jesus is. Give us the grace to invite many to our services during Holy Week. And thank you, Father, for giving us a great day today. Thank you that it already is a great day. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember that.